Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, 9 through 15, Matthew 6, 9 through 15, we are continuing in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, slowly walking our way, making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've kind of slowed down a little bit here in the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll, we spent last week uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we, we kind of covered the, uh, the larger section of text that the, the Lord's Prayer is in uh, a couple Sundays ago, then we started into the Lord's Prayer last week, and we'll continue to, to move through it this week, and then uh, again next week as well. Um, and so we will be looking at the Lord's Prayer again in Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help in our time together. And Father, we come to you as your children We come to you with empty hands and asking for gifts from you. Uh, We ask for gifts of conviction and confrontation where there is opposition to you in our hearts. We ask for gifts of comfort and consolation from the truth of the gospel this morning. We ask that you would change us and conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We ask that you would help us as your people to be bound together in perfect unity as a result of the work of your Spirit through your Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, my good friend, uh, Pastor James Reisner, led us into the, the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is sometimes called the Our Father, the model prayer. Um, It's it's Jesus's instruction for how disciples are to pray, and it's placed in in contrast with the way that the hypocrites pray, or the the pagan Gentiles uh, pray. The hypocrites pray, Jesus says, in order to be seen and praised by others. The pagan Gentiles pray, Jesus says, in order to uh, sort of manipulate and appease their gods in order uh, uh, to, to, into giving them what they want. But, but Jesus instructs his disciples not to pray to be seen by others and not to pray in order to appease uh, our God. Instead, Jesus' disciples are to approach God as our Father who sees us and who knows us. Pray with words of simplicity and an attitude of dependency and humility. And it's, it's worth noticing, actually, that the Lord's Prayer is at the exact dead center of the Sermon on the Mount. It's at the exact center of Jesus' authoritative vision for human flourishing, at the exact center of his instruction concerning what it means to be a kingdom people, in the exact center of that kind of sermon Jesus teaches us how to pray. And that means for us, at the heart of what it means to be a flourishing people, at the heart of what it means to be kingdom people, is to be a people of prayer. And Pastor James helped us last week to see that the the sort of proper disposition uh, that we ought to take in prayer is first and foremost to be oriented Godward, to be oriented toward God, right? So the Lord's Prayer is structured with an address 
and then six petitions. An address and then six petitions. So there's the address, uh, our Father in heaven. It's an address that shows honor and reverence to God while also expressing our intimate status as his very own children. And then there's six petitions. There's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are the first three. And then the second three, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you can see these first three petitions are oriented Godward. They are concerned with God's name, uh, God's kingdom, God's will. The petitions are that God's name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're concerned, these petitions are concerned with the things of God, and rightly so. Our lives and our prayers should always be first and foremost oriented toward God. He's the magnificent one. He's the excellent one. He is the one of whom nothing greater can be conceived, as one early church father put it. He's worthy of our giving up ourselves to his service, both with our lips and our lives, because of who he is and because of what he's done for us in redemption. Our our lives and our prayers should first and foremost be oriented toward God. But now we turn and look at the second half of the Lord's Prayer. We look at the last three petitions Here we see that Jesus invites us not only to orient our prayers toward the things of God, but also to bring our needs toward to him. How magnificent is that, really? Here we're invited to come to the high and mighty sovereign of the universe, to come to him as our very own father invited, as it were, to crawl up into his lap and whisper our needs into his ear. He invites us to come to him with our needs, our needs for daily practical provision, our need of forgiveness, our need for for deliverance from temptation and the power of sin. And inherent in this invitation that we look at, is also the promise to provide these needs for us when we ask for them. And so, that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus' instruction about prayer in Matthew 6, 9-15. through 15. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our Savior King. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither Will your Father forgive your trespasses? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, let's look together at Jesus' invitation, our needs, and God's provision. First, we see Jesus' invitation. So, uh, last week, you, you took a moment to look at 
the address that begins the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And uh, like the rest of the prayer, it's jam-packed full of theological significance. In it, we call God Father. It's an expression of intimacy with God. There's not just intimacy, there's also reverence here. It's our Father in heaven. We call God not just Father, but our Father in heaven. In heaven, as an expression of reverence to him for his greatness, his bigness, his sovereignty. He is the infinite one. He is the one uh, who is incomprehensible. He's the omniscient and, and omnipotent one. He's the righteous one. He's the thrice holy God. He is the one to whom all of our reverence and obedience and love is due. It's no wonder then. That later traditions added the doxology at the, that at the end of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He deserves all of our reverence, obedience, and love. Therefore, Christians, a Christian's prayers ought to always reflect the bigness of God. A Christian's prayers ought to always express reverence for God uh, as uh, our God and Father who is in heaven. But we not only see here, the, the bigness of God, and we not only seek to express our reverence toward God in prayer, there's also here in Jesus' uh, uh, model prayer, there's an expression of intimacy. We say, our Father in heaven. Perhaps we've seen and said these words so many times that it no longer amazes us, but here Jesus is also inviting us to call this this high and holy God, the one and only sovereign of the universe. He's inviting us to call him Father. A.W. Tozer, he once spoke, uh, spoke to this astounding reality. He said, we need to remember, of course, that when we think of that vast mysterium tremendum, sounds like a Harry Potter spell, that vast mystery, that vast wonder that fills the universe, In all the other big words that philosophers use to describe God Almighty, he is the same God who called himself the I am that I I am that I I am. He is this great and high and mighty sovereign. And yet, his son taught us to call him our father which art in heaven. A king sits on a throne, inhabits a palace, wears a crown and a robe, and they call him your majesty. But when his little children see him, they run to him and yell, Daddy! So no matter what awe-filled terms the philosophers want to apply to this power that rules the universe, you and I can say, our Father who art in heaven. Of course, for eternity past, the Son of God has had that right, that right to call God Father. Because in eternity past, the, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwell together in perfect love and unity as the one true God. But what is so astounding here is that the Son of God stepped in and became what we are so that we might become what He is. He stepped into our humanity. He became a Son of Man so that we might become sons of God. We were far from God. We were slaves to sin, but Jesus stepped in. He took on our humanity and He took upon Himself our sin at the cross and He rose to new life three days later to make us by grace what He is by nature. So, don't you see these, these first two words of the Lord's Prayer here? We see that Jesus intends to share His very own sonship with us. 
just a few chapters earlier in, in Matthew, we see this wonderful text, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. We see Jesus' baptism. And the reason I love it so much is we get to see this, this kind of incredibly intimate moment. Jesus is, is baptized, the Son of God is baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, and the Father says something. He says, uh, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Father, he loves the Son. He, the Father loves, he delights, he takes great pleasure in the Son. He delights in the Son. And here's what some of you need to hear this morning, is that if you trust in Jesus, Jesus has shared his sonship with you, and the Father says those very same words over you because you're clothed in Christ this morning. Positionally, if you trust in Christ, you are in Christ, in prayer, you come to the Father clothed in him. Therefore, in prayer, you come to God as a child comes to his papa. This is the invitation of Jesus for us this morning, to come to God as our Father in prayer. And it's contrasted with another way of praying. You might call it the, the orphan way of praying, or uh, uh, Jesus calls it this sort of pagan Gentile way of praying. We see in verses 7 and 8, Jesus instructs his people that when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father, your Father, he knows what you need before you ask him. See, Jesus is contrasting this, this true and deep life of prayer with that of the pagan Gentiles. They, the, 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 the pagan Gentiles, Jesus says, they would heap up empty phrases. It was a regular practice. They would chant and repeat, and they would do so for, for quite some time, and they would do so for the purpose of appeasing their gods so that their gods might hear them and give them what they ask for. We see a good example of this in Scripture, actually, in 1 Kings 18. Uh, we see the, the sort of prophet Elijah's sort of throwdown with the prophets of Baal. And uh, it's an epic story. It's an epic story. It's Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to put a sacrifice on an altar and to ask Baal, their God, to send down fire upon it. While he did the same thing, asking Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, to consume his sacrifice with fire. Well, the prophets of Baal, they accept the challenge. And the prophets of Baal cried out to Baal. They said, oh, Baal, answer us, it says, from morning until noon, about four to five hours. They repeated over and over and over and over again, asking Baal to, to come down and to consume this sacrifice with fire and no answer. And so they cut themselves, and they, uh, which is part of this sort of appeal uh, of, uh, to appease uh, Baal so that Baal might hear them and answer them. It's the kind of act, you know, it may seem strange to us as 21st century people. It was not all that common, though, in the ancient world. The people would cry out with chants and repetitive petitions over and over and over, and some might cut themselves and offer their own blood as a, as a sort of sacrifice to appease their gods in order to receive that which for they were asking. And while probably none of us struggle with the temptation to chant for hours and so on and so forth, to appease our God like those Gentiles in ancient times did. The reality is 
is that for, for some of us, the, the overwhelming sense that we need to appease God with our own goodness is a barrier to a true and deep life of prayer. Some of you feel that God is not pleased with you. And some of you feel that you have got to make, you have this incessant need to make God happy with you, that you've got to earn a way into his good graces, that you've got to appease him. And here's the thing, you can't enjoy fellowship with, some, with someone you're constantly trying to appease. You can't enjoy being with someone that you feel you've got to constantly appease. Have you ever tried to have like a genuine, pleasant conversation with someone that you feel like you have to walk on pins and needles around. That's exhausting. It's not enjoyable. Well, if you view God in the same way, you certainly won't enjoy a vibrant prayer life. You'll actually begin to avoid prayer. You'll begin to avoid being with God and fellowshipping with God in prayer. So here's part of what I want you to understand this morning. Your sin did indeed make you unacceptable to God. You made yourself an enemy of God when you sinned against him, when you sin against him. But Jesus went to the cross to appease the just anger of God toward you. And now you are no longer an enemy. And now you're not just his friend. He didn't just bring you into this like status of being God's friend now. You are God's child. Jesus has shared his very own sonship with you. God says over you now, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You don't need to appease him. Jesus did that. You can simply come to him with your needs. He is pleased with you. He's pleased to hear you. He's pleased to be with you. He's pleased to meet your needs. So come to your father in heaven. That is Jesus' invitation. And secondly, we see see Jesus' instruction on prayer address our needs. You don't need to chant or mindlessly repeat or do any other sort of mechanical acts in order to appease our Father. We can simply come to him as our Father and simply uh, ask him for what we need. And Jesus names three primary needs that everyone deals with, that everyone has in life. He deals with bread, our practical needs. He deals with forgiveness, our spiritual need. And deliverance, our moral need. First, he deals with bread. We're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And, and time does not permit us to devote ourselves to, to uh, unpack this in a worthy manner. But basically, the petition is, is this, provide food for us to eat. Give us food to eat daily. And it's placed here after the petitions regarding God's name, kingdom, and will, of course, because we're to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, as Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, and all these things like food and clothing and practical needs, Jesus says, will be provided for us. But still, practical provisions are still concerns for us, aren't they? Still concern- we, we still have the necessity to eat and be clothed and so on and so forth. And what's more is that Jesus is saying in this particular petition is that in, the, it, it, in its presence in the Lord's Prayer here is that this is a concern for God as well. God is concerned. He cares about our practical needs. He cares 
about our physical well-being. He cares that we have food to eat. He cares that we have clothes to wear. He cares that we have grocery stores and farmers and bakers and butchers and cobblers and clothes makers. He cares about these things. And so, well, some of us have, have uh, some in church history have, have sought to kind of spiritualize this request in the Lord prayer. It's rather clear here that Jesus is teaching us to bring our physical and practical needs to him in prayer. One of my favorite quotes from uh, C.S. Lewis speaks to God's care for our physical bodies. He once wrote this. He said, there's no use in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life in us. Talking about the Lord's Supper. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity taught that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in and of themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, our energy. He's right. God cares about our created physical physicality. He, he created our bodies. This is his idea in the first place, and he wants to ensure that our bodies are properly cared for and provided for. He wants us to be well-fed, and so we're taught to ask for our daily bread. And secondly, Jesus teaches us to ask for forgiveness. A sinful humanity, this is unquestionably a need of ours. And indeed, we, we all deep down desire this. We all deep down desire, long for even, forgiveness. I remember reading some time ago about an interview with Woody Allen. He's a well-known film director and, and an outspoken atheist. Well, in an interview, an interviewer asked him, if there were a God, and you could hear him say one thing to you, what would it be? And he responded by saying, I would want to hear three words, I forgive you. I forgive you. Likewise, a well-known Anglican pastor and theologian from London, John Stott, once wrote a wonderful book called Confess Your Sins. Wonderful book, highly suggested. And in it, he, he mentions a famous doctor and mental health hospital president from London who once said he could release half of his patients the very next day if he could only convince them that they were forgiven. We need forgiveness. We need God's word of absolution spoken over us, and we know it. Jesus knows it, and so we're taught to pray for it. And if you've struggled with thinking that the Sermon on the Mount expects God's new covenant people to be sinless, hopefully this relieves you of that delusion. Because here, Jesus is teaching his disciples, those who are already in the family of God, those who already call God Father, those who have already been converted, he's teaching them to ask for the forgiveness sin. He says we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now part of what we need to understand about this particular petition is that it's asking for a specific kind of forgiveness. It's asking for what theologians sometimes call filial forgiveness or family forgiveness. And this is distinguished from what's often called forensic forgiveness or legal forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness or legal forgiveness is the kind of forgiveness that someone receives in first becoming a Christian. 
It's what gets someone into the family of God. This is the kind of forgiveness that makes someone a child of God, which gives them the right to approach God as father in the first place. Whenever we talk about justification through faith alone, which is the Christians being declared righteous in Christ, or whenever we talk about someone being adopted into God's family, we're talking about forensic forgiveness, something that happens once and immediately when you trust in Christ. And from that moment forward, that is your position. That doesn't change when you sin. A child of God is a child of God, and they are such on the basis of Christ, not on the basis of how good or bad they are. They are a child of God on the basis of Christ. Christ's righteousness is the basis for their salvation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Christian status before God doesn't change because Christ's righteousness never changes. However, as Christians, we still sin, don't we? We still sin. We still sin against God. We still defy Him and deny Him and rebel against Him in our hearts. We still struggle with hypocrisy and selfishness and like. We have a new nature in Christ, but our old nature is still in there warring against our new nature. And we still sometimes give in to that old nature, into the old Adam within us. And when that happens, our status as God's children doesn't change, but it still breaks fellowship with God still as children, but there needs to be reconciliation, similar to if a child sins against a parent in the home. A child, they're, 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 they don't lose their status as a child with their parent, but there's a rift in fellowship nonetheless. You can't just carry on pretending everything is status quo. You, you can't just carry on pretending that, uh, that, that, that everything is normal. There's a barrier and the relationship that needs to be addressed and torn down there needs to be reconciliation and restoration of fellowship. There needs to be confession of sin and forgiveness. Well, similarly, when we sin as members of God's household, as God's very own children, we need to come back to him. We need to confess our sin to him. We need to be reconciled to him. We need to have our fellowship with him restored. And let me tell you that, that some of you are currently continually not walking in the freedom available to you in Christ Jesus because you don't regularly and habitually confess your sins to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness. Some of you walk around with consciences weighed down with guilt and shame and fear needlessly. Some of you are increasingly growing desensitized to the presence and voice of God. Some of you wonder why you don't experience the joy and peace that scripture says characterizes the Christian life. This is why, for some of you, because you're habitually failing to confess your sin to God. You're failing to keep short accounts with God. And so to you, I would say what the apostle Peter says to the crowd in Acts 3, he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. Your, your unconfessed sin does not change your status as God's child, but it does stand in the way of you being refreshed in his presence. So Jesus invites you to come to God to ask for and receive forgiveness and to be refreshed, to be assured, to be at peace. He purchased that for you in his cross and he invites you to, to come and receive it in the Lord's prayer. And furthermore, I would say this, 
that you must not only ask for forgiveness for your sins, but you also must forgive others their sins against you. The Lord Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And interestingly, Jesus adds a sort of PS after the Lord's prayer in verses 14 to 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a hard word, isn't it? And easily misunderstood. Some of you might be wondering, does does that mean that our forgiveness is based on our good works, like forgiving others? No. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus, his cross, his death, his resurrection is the basis for our forgiveness, both forensic and filial. But the reality is, is that there's no way someone who is refusing to forgive someone else's sins is in the state of repentance necessary to receive forgiveness from God. Someone who is refusing to forgive someone else's sins and yet is expecting God to forgive them their sins hasn't yet understood the holiness of God and the weight of their own sin. If, if you withhold forgiveness from another but expect God to forgive you, you obviously think that this other person's sin is greater, a greater affront to you than your sin is to God. And therefore, you have obviously failed to come to terms with the glory of God, the greatness of your sin, the grace of the gospel. You see, your sin and all sin is primarily and ultimately against God. He's the one who made you. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who gave you breath. He's the one who gives you breath to this day. He is the one to whom you owe all love, reverence, and obedience. You owe it to him simply because of who he is in his majesty and who you are in relation to him. That's why in Psalm 51, David prays, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know that story, the story that led to to David praying that prayer? He sinned against a ton of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Nathan. He sinned against his soldiers. He sinned against the entirety of his kingdom, really. He sinned against tons of people. And in particularly harmful and grievous ways. And you know what he rightly concludes in Psalm 51. The biggest problem with David's sin is that his sin was an assault against the glory and majesty and holiness of God. And any assault against the glorious, majestical, thrice holy God is worthy of death and an eternity of eternal conscious torment. And yet Christ steps in and he takes that debt upon himself and he pays it in full so that you're accepted as a beloved child of God. And when you come to that realization, when you realize the debt of your own sin, when you realize what Christ paid for it, the trespasses of others against you seem vastly smaller in comparison, don't they? But if you refuse to forgive others their trespasses against you, you've shown yourself to not truly believe the gospel. 
You've shown yourself to view yourself as higher and more important than God. You've shown that you believe other sins against you are worse than your sins against God. You've shown that you don't really think you need forgiveness to be that great. You've shown yourself to be self-righteous. And if there's anything we know about the gospel, it's that it's for those, it's not for those who think themselves righteous, it's for those who know themselves to be sinners. Jesus came not for the well, but for the ill. He came for sinners who know they need repentance. He came for those who, who genuinely and earnestly pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Third and last need taught to pray for is deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that's, that's the ESV translation. If you have an NLT or a CSB translation, uh, they'll say deliver us from the evil one. It's a better translation than the ESV or the NASB or the KJV. The reason is that there's, there's a definite article that you don't see in the ESV. There's a definite article in front of the word translated as evil. You can't see it, but it, the very little translation would be delivers from the evil. Now, of course, the word evil is an adjective, right? But sometimes adjectives kind of function as nouns. Um, we do this in English too, like if you're a spaghetti western fan. Be familiar with the movie with Clint Eastwood called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Good, bad, and ugly, they're adjectives, but they're functioning as nouns. They're in reference to particular characters in the movie. Well, likewise, in Matthew 6, 13, Jesus is saying here that we ought to be prayed, uh, that we ought to pray to be delivered from the evil one. The evil is a particular person, namely Satan, we're to pray to be delivered from the power and temptation of Satan, the evil one. Now, a question that, that always comes up when we consider a passage like this is, is why we're asking God to lead us not in temptation when God is not the one who tempts us in the first place, right? Verse from James 1.13 comes to mind, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Jesus saying here in the Lord's Prayer, suggesting that, that God is indeed the one who tempts us, while James is suggesting the opposite? What's the deal? People wonder. Now, of course, Jesus is not suggesting here that God is the one who tempts us. He doesn't teach us to pray, Father, don't tempt us to sin. It's not what he says. Rather, he says, lead us not into temptation. It's a request that recognizes the the sovereignty of God over every single circumstance in our lives, while also recognizing that it's actually our own flesh, the world, and particularly, as referred to here, it's Satan that tempts us, not God. We see this exact kind of situation take place just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, actually, in Matthew 4. Jesus, right after that beautiful baptism scene we talked about a few minutes ago, he has this wilderness experience where he's in the wilderness fasting from food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's there in the wilderness that Jesus encounters Satan and Satan tempts him to sin. And in Matthew 4.1, introduces the scene by saying, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
wasn't God who was tempt, it wasn't God who tempted Jesus, it was Satan, but God led Jesus into the wilderness wherein he was tempted by Satan. That's the kind of setting and circumstance that Jesus is teaching us uh, to pray and ask God to keep us from. Not only that, but in asking to be delivered from the evil one, this petition also is asking not just to, to, to not be led into temptation, but also to be delivered from the power of Satan when we are in the throes of temptation. It's asking to be delivered from the evil ones. Petition recognizes that we will indeed meet with temptation in this life on this side of glory. So we're not only asking to avoid temptation, but the petition is also requesting power to withstand and flee from temptation in our lives. Now that's core. What, what this particular petition is communicating is really our utter helplessness to withstand temptation apart from the deliverance and help of God. Hence the word deliver. Let me tell you something we might not want to hear. We are weak. We are, we are weak sauce. We're weak. Every single one of us. We're like Peter who later in Matthew, in Matthew 26, when Jesus said that all the disciples were going to fall away from him that night when he was arrested, Peter said, though they all fall away because of you, I'm never going to fall away. I'll be with you to the end. I will never fall away. And that very night, Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, denies that he even knows Jesus. Apart from the rescue and deliverance and power of God in the face of temptation, we will succumb every single time. And so we we pray, not that God would merely help us in the face of temptation. We pray not that God will assist us in the face of temptation, knowing our weakness and knowing that we are no match for the power and wisdom and cunning tactics of Satan. We pray that God would deliver us, that he would rescue us from the evil one. We need a savior, not an assistant, Charles Quarles says. He says we need a savior, not an assistant. We need a hero, not a helper. We need a champion who will fight the evil one for us and who will snatch us from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. My friends, that's precisely what God has given us in Christ. Jesus invites us to come to God with these needs of ours. We come to him for our practical needs, for our spiritual needs, for our moral needs. We need bread. We need forgiveness. We need deliverance. And what Christ beckons us to ask for here, God provides generously in the one who's teaching us to pray. Look with me lastly at God's provision. In Christ, God becomes no longer our judge, but our Father. Jesus shares his sonship before the Father with us so that God's disposition toward us is the very same disposition he has toward Jesus because we're clothed in Jesus. He delights in us. He's pleased with us. He longs to be gracious to us and give us good gifts and provide for us. And this includes provision of food and other practical needs. Indeed, if you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, Father promises to genuinely, to generously, rather, provide our practical needs for us. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. And he tells his disciples that whatever our practical needs 
are, we're to freely bring them to God and ask. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, because of who you are now in Christ, God will provide for your every need. That doesn't mean that he'll always provide for every want. It doesn't mean that he'll provide for your every need in ways that are your preference. But I say to you with the authority of the word of God, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to to wring your hands and worry. Your Father will provide for you. I also want you to know that that your church family is committed to being a a means of meeting your practical needs, should you ever need. If you look at Acts 2, 42 through 47, it's another one of my favorite texts in Scripture. You can tell because I repeat these texts a lot, talk about them a lot. But the people of God, it says in Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is there's no one needy in their midst. There's no one hungry. There's no one needy in their midst. The people of God are one of the means through which God provides for his people. There are times in our lives where we meet with unexpected circumstances, where we meet with lean seasons or catastrophic events. Well, God intends that his people provide for his people. That's why we ask for our daily bread and not my daily bread. Whatever food or goods we possess, they belong ultimately not to us but to God and therefore ought to be shared with his children when his children are in need. And so God provides for his family and sometimes the way he does so is through his family. But God not only provides for our practical needs in and through Christ, but he also provides for our spiritual needs through Christ as well. Our need of forgiveness is given in and through Jesus Christ. Our sin condemned us. Our sin controlled us. Our sin defined us. But the Son of God came, and he took on our humanity, and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived in our place. And then having lived the perfect life that we should have lived, he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die in our place. He took our debt upon himself on the cross, and he paid it in full. And then when he rose again, three days later, the check cleared. So now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from the sin that condemned us before our holy God. But in Christ... God not only provides rescue from the guilt of our sin, but he also provides rescue from the power of sin. So often, we want relief of sin's guilt, but not relief from sin itself. We want to not face the temporal and eternal consequences of sin, but we still want to dabble with it in the here and now, but that's not the fullness of what God has for us in Christ Jesus. He wants us to not only be free from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. And so we not only have forgiveness of sin provided for us in Christ, but we have deliverance from temptation and sin in Christ. My friends, what I said earlier is true. We are weak sauce. We are no match for the power and cunning tactics 
of Satan. We are no match for the power of our own flesh and of the world. And in and of ourselves, we are helpless in the face of such temptation. But Christ isn't. He went toe to toe with the devil and he came out on top. Colossians 2.15 says that by his work on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And on the third day, he rose again so that we might be filled with the power of his new creation, so that we might have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with us all the time, so that we would be delivered from the power and temptation of the evil one. Friends, God has provided every need of yours in Christ Jesus. He is our daily bread. He is our forgiveness. He is our deliverance. And therefore, as we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, we look to him, we run to him, we come to God, bringing our daily needs to him, trusting that he will provide every need of ours in Christ. He is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts as we approach the table? Would you let this meal be a confirmation of the truth of the gospel, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, that he is our daily bread, that he is our forgiveness, that he is our deliverance. Would you feed our souls with him, with his body and with his blood, now in Jesus' name, amen.